Hey there, this is Pastor Jason from the Christian Life Church, and we are pleased to bring you the recorded sessions from our recent Heritage 2020 conference with Tim Barton of Wall Builders. call this next segment Grilling Tim. So I hope everybody thought of some real doozies for him. All right, so just one more time. We're recording everything for people that are shut in that couldn't come out, so I just ask that uh, if you have a question, just need to speak into the microphone so we can record that too. That way the people aren't wondering what he's answering. So does anybody have a question? Oh, there we go. Neil's got one. I got a new one for you tonight. You were talking about uh, the conscience earlier. Yes. And I was just wondering, is it ethical for, uh, is it ethical to vote for a leader whose words, actions, and attitudes offend a Christian's conscience, or should that person abstain from the duty and privilege to vote? <clears throat> it's a really good question. One of the things that I think we sometimes have a faulty perspective on in looking at leaders is recognizing that uh, Jesus is never on the ballot, and the only time Jesus ever was on the ballot, they chose Barabbas, right? So... We're never going to have a chance to vote for Jesus and recognizing what Paul wrote in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, everybody is going to have their issues. One of the things that we would encourage is the Bible talks about that righteousness exalts a nation uh, and, and righteousness, we're supposed to seek the first kingdom of God and his righteousness. Righteousness should be a big priority for us as Christians. The question is how do we determine righteousness? And I, I think biblically, there are several really good indications of righteousness. If you look in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws God gave the Israelites. Of those laws, there were 10 that were written in stone, right? Those were kind of the foundation upon which lots of other things were added. But among the things that are the foundation, we could point to certain commands that are still relevant for us today. One of them is do not murder. Now, I know some translations say don't kill. Uh, the Hebrew would say murder, and killing and murder are different things. Killing is shedding blood, murder is shedding innocent blood. And God is always against murder, every time. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament says, you've heard it was said, do not murder. But I said, don't even be angry in your heart. But the point is, he was referencing the law of Moses, saying don't murder. Murder is always against God's command. Shedding innocent blood is always wrong. There is an issue today that specifically deals with shedding innocent blood, and that would be the issue of abortion. So I think you can make a very logical connection that abortion is part of God's top 10 because it's shedding innocent blood and God said no. Okay, you also can look at the fact 
that God talked about, uh, do not commit adultery. And God is, in doing that, God is trying to protect the institution of marriage is what that command is trying to accomplish. God is concerned with the issue of marriage. Right, frankly, he is. Jesus, in, in Matthew 19, says, for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, is joined with his wife, to become one flesh. He defines it as a man and a woman. And, and just in case that's confusing to anybody, also the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Right, so we specified. There, there's two. It's a mom and a dad. Marriage is something that was very significant to God. Um, one of the things, even in the Ten Commandments, if you back up, we, as Protestants, generally it's known as the prologue. But different denominations actually number the Ten Commandments a little differently. Sometimes Jews specifically are one easy example, but even uh, a few different denominations number the Ten Commandments differently. The Jews, their very first command starts off, I would call it the prologue, but it's, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. They say, you shall have no other gods is not the first command. The first command is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The reason they say that's the first command is they say, if you don't acknowledge that he is the Lord your God, then none of the other commands matter. So you have to start with the acknowledgement that he is the Lord your God. That's an interesting thought because if everything starts with the acknowledgement of God, well, that's something we would get to with religious liberty. You need to be able to acknowledge there's a God. Right now there's problems right, with kids in public school who can't acknowledge God if they're the valedictorian. They can't acknowledge God over their meals, over their lunch. Uh, with city council and mayors, they're, they're, they're not allowed to acknowledge God. Separation of church and state. I think religious liberty is an issue that you definitely can make an argument that would be something important to God. Jesus even said, right, if you deny me here, I will deny you. You need to acknowledge him, right? We have to be able to open and express our faith in him. So I think religious liberty, abortion, marriage, all of those are things that certainly could be impactful. I think you could even make an argument that are even related to the Ten Commandments. So part of even looking at voting is how do people do on issues related to righteousness, okay? What a lot of times we look at voting are not issues of righteousness. For example, one of the big, big things a lot of Christians think is really important to vote on is how are we going to take care of the poor, right? Social programs. Here's the problem. Social programs didn't make the Ten Commandments. Now, God did deal with social programs, that just was not the top tier to God, right? I don't think you can say social programs are more important in God's kingdom than abortion is, because right, that was shedding innocent blood. That's God's top 10. And of the 613 commands, it's even interesting when, when you look at what the Bible says about caring for the poor, we know that there are three different institutions, the family, government, and the church. If you look in the Old Testament and you look up the word poor, and you see everything it says about the poor, and there are some specific commands about helping the poor and taking care of the poor, and this and that for the poor, if you look at all the commands and you say, okay, was that command given to the family or to the government, to the church? There's only two things the government's ever told in the Bible to deal with the poor. The only two things are give them justice in your courts and do not show favoritism against them in justice. That's all. So favoritism and justice is all the courts are told. Everything else is supposed to be individuals helping care for the poor, care for the needy, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of Christians are motivated. Well, we should take care of the poor. We should. We've just confused who should be doing that. Uh, there's a group called the American Institute for Philanthropy that measures every charitable organization to see who does a good job. If you give money to charity, do they do a good job giving that money where it should go? They say at least 60% of your dollar should reach the intended target or it's not a good charity to give to. Okay? When you look at the federal government, less than 30 cents of every dollar reaches the intended target of what we are actually taxed for. 
The rest is spin up and bureaucracy of all these people there not even making it to the project. The reason I point that out, when people say we need to do more to help the poor, we've confused thinking the government is a really good resource to help the poor. The government is one of the most ineffective, inefficient ways ever to help the poor. If we want to do more to help the poor, we actually would do better taking some of the money for social programs and saying, let's give it to the churches in the communities and say, churches, you help these people in the community that are poor, that are needy, whatever else the case is. If money started going to churches, how much of that money would reach the intended target? At least 90, if not 100%, depending on the church. That's not what the government does. And so a lot of times we vote on issues that are not issues of righteousness, thinking the government will solve problems that they were not created to solve, nor can they solve effectively or efficiently. What we should look at is where do people stand on issues of righteousness? When it came, for example, the last election, I told people before the election, I think that Hillary and Trump are a little similar to uh, Trump being Sam and Hillary being Jezebel. Okay? Hillary, totally against religious freedom, right? Didn't support biblical issues, ideas, and didn't support Christians' involvement in different areas, right? So she doesn't like Christian principles and values, and she doesn't really support Christians in a lot of what they do, okay? Trump, like Samson, Samson never followed the way of God hardly ever his whole life, except he did fight for the people of God at times. And I said, I don't think Trump, right, there, there's no evidence in his life he's been a godly man to speak of. There's nothing that I'm like, man, I'm voting for this man of God. No. I said, but there is a chance that he says he believes in life. He believes in religious liberty, right? He believes in Israel. He is saying things that Hillary's already said she doesn't support that. If Trump does support it, that's the only chance I have. Now, I had a lot of friends who said I can never vote for Trump because he's a bad man. This is where I believe that you should work out, right, your own conscience. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's between you and God. You have to figure that out. But I can tell you from a biblical pers perspective, we should vote for issues of righteousness. And righteousness is not determined by what someone tweets, but by the policies they institute. Right? And this is huge. Because if President Trump did not have a Twitter, right, and, and if he was able to control his mouth, which James even... James 3 tells us, like, controlling the mouth is really hard, right? That's a hard thing to do. But if, if he didn't talk and didn't tweet, and all we had to look at were what he had produced, we would go, this guy is a champion and hero on so many levels. The reason people despise him in many regards is because of what he says and what he tweets. Now, that's not to discount that what he says and tweets, like, some of it's really dumb. And I get why people hate what he does, and I'm not defending that totally wrong. But I think also we have a faulty perspective even looking at people. King David in the Bible, total hero in the Bible. Total hero, right? King David, amazing warrior, amazing worshiper. But the Bible tells us the whole story of King David. It tells us also about David's kids. Absalom, right, was the son who tried to take the throne. Amnon was the son who I can't say real detailed because there's young ears in the room. Amnon was the one who liked his sister. He knew his sister forcefully. And Absalom finds out, kills Amnon. Okay? Absalom then tries to take the throne, ends up dying. Adonijah is another son. The very first verse the Bible says about Adonijah is Adonijah was a son that David never once corrected. 
What kind of father has never once said, hey, son, whoa, whoa, we shouldn't do that. You never once correct. You're a terrible father. David was a terrible father. On top of that, the Bible says at a time when kings go to war, David did not go to war. He stayed home from his balcony, looked out, saw the woman of unusual beauty, right, Bathsheba. They have the affair. She gets pregnant. Oh, my gosh, what do I do? Brings Uriah back. That doesn't work. Says, okay, send him to the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. We'll draw the troops back, and we'll let the enemy take care of this guy. David had a man bumped off, right? David is a really, really jacked up dude. Like, how can you ever celebrate King David, who's a terrible father? He's a murderer and adult. How do you celebrate him? This is where we've confused things as Christians, even looking in kind of the landscape we have now. Never once do we celebrate the sin in David's life. Rather, we celebrate how God used a broken person and did something really special through that person. And we are flawed in our thinking if we are looking, saying, which candidate has had the least sin in their life? That's not maybe not a bad idea, except... It's not about which one has the least sin. It's about which one has the best philosophy because it says that righteousness is what exalts the nation. In the Old Testament, ungodly men who enacted righteous policies enjoyed God's blessing on their kingdom. So it's not about who is the most righteous personally. It's about who has the most righteous policies. And that's where as Christians, we had to go to the Bible and say, okay, so how do we determine righteousness? What are those policies? And what should I support? And that's why for me, I will always support candidates that are pro-life, that are pro-marriage, that are pro-religious liberty, that are pro-Israel, because right, God in covenant with Abraham says, I will make you a nation and I'll bless us to bless you and curse us to curse you. That's, that's a pretty easy one to me, right? We can be in God's blessing or God's cursing according, if this is true, and I believe the Bible's true, right? So those are issues to me that are the, the top issues I look for. Um, I totally understand if someone says, well, I could, could never vote for this person because of that. I, I get it. And, and you have to have convictions that you are, are ready to stand before God and say, God, this is why I did this. And if you feel like you're ready to do that, you can do that. I don't mind having a conversation and saying, here's why I think maybe that position is wrong based on the Bible. Because a lot of people have convictions that are more driven by their feelings than the word of God. Right? I just, I just feel like that's wrong. Why? Because I feel it. <laughs> right? Well, it's not really how we define our life as Christians, is our feelings. We're supposed to actually crucify our flesh, feelings, and its sinful desire, because our flesh often wants what's not biblical. So I want to make sure that I'm not being guided by how I feel, but rather what the Word of God says, which is why I look for those issues of righteousness. Is that good? Okay. Marcel, you have a question? How did abortion start? It's a really good question. You know, actually, in the Bible, when Joseph, like the guy with the coat of many colors, you know Joseph? When he goes to Egypt, the Israelites had so many people that the first example we see in the Bible is actually the Pharaoh who said, I'm afraid they have too many people. And so he started saying, I don't want any of their boys to live anymore. And so he did some really, really bad things. But this is a really old issue that when, when people have sin in their life, they do a lot of bad things. And that's why we need Jesus, right? Because he helps us in our issues in life. But when people don't know God, they do bad things sometimes. And so this is something that goes way back, even in the time of the Bible. It's a really good question, though. Did I answer that delicately enough, Dad? Good, good, good. <laughs> one more. We got one more. One more question. 
there's so much uh, deception out there in the news, you know, and the uh, parties. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are really messed up because of all this deception. You know, you, you look at the news. Absolutely. And, you know, like over 90% is down on Trump, you know, and the Democrat Party there, you know, they have uh, all this, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, what do you call it? They're trying to, yeah, anger. Uh, or sure. Trump, you know, they're trying to put him down. And how do you get around this? Because, uh, you know, I see a lot of people in church, and they have, you know, like, you know, they, they sound like good Christians, but, boy, they're on the wrong side because of this deception. Sure. Or, yeah, so the, the, the question is, how do we navigate with a news media that's not always honest? Right? And the problem is in culture, you only can operate with the information you have. And if you have bad information, then you're drawing bad conclusions, you make bad decisions. So how do we make sure we have good information? And, and this is something we, the, the tribe of Issachar, when it talked about people that understood the times and knew how to respond, if you understand that the culture you live in is not always going to tell you the full story, the question you always should ask is, what's the rest of the story? Because even though we can point to a certain news media outlet, I can tell you Fox and CNN both misrepresent things, right? This is not a one or the other side. We live in a culture that cares more about my side winning politically than they care about what is actually true. Because for them, it's very Machiavellian. The end justifies the mean. As long as we win, that's all that matters. Well, if we know we live in that culture and we want to be people that live based on morals and on truth, then we can't just buy into the first thing we hear. We have to dig deeper and say, okay, what's the rest of the story? And oftentimes, if you, for example, if something happens in the news, if you listen to CNN and then listen to Fox and they both say something totally different, the truth is probably somewhere between the two of those groups. It's just that very seldom do we, do we listen to the whole story. And, and we live in a culture that very much likes confirmation bias. I want someone to tell me that what I think is true and then I'm going to keep believing we don't often pursue truth. And I think our first, our first goal has to be we have to be people that look for truth because when we look for truth, then we listen to both sides. And a lot of people, even at church, right, that, well, I heard this, well, I read this. And I remember years ago when my mom was reading something on the Internet, she sent it to me and said, look what I just found on the Internet. And I had to be like, Mom, just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. But, right, we kind of live in a culture that says, well, well, the news wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. And it's like, no, they might, right? They, they really might. We just, we don't do a good job filtering anymore. And so what we have to do is, the, the Bible talks about, Paul wrote, I, uh, I think it was, I think it was Galatians, Pastor Mike can help me. Um, I think it's Galatians 5, where it says, be careful how you walk, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the times because the days are evil. I think it's 5, 16 to 17, I think is, is around where it is. But, if we know we live in a fallen, broken world and people are dishonest, then it's easier for us to walk in wisdom knowing I can't believe the first thing I hear. It's harder helping people come to that same conclusion, right? And this is where I mentioned last night, I think the best way we can help people around us is engage in relationship and not necessarily try to change their mind as much as help them, help them think through things on a deeper level. And it's why I, I support asking questions to people anytime they have a thought, I want to ask them questions so that they have to defend their position and not because I, I want to expose them always. It's because sometimes they've never thought through their position and I don't have to tell them it's wrong all the time because sometimes as they try to defend their position, they realize, oh, that doesn't make very much sense, does it? And you go, no, it doesn't. 
But they came to that conclusion themselves because they had to start thinking about the position they have. And, and I think a, a maybe loving way to do this is start asking questions. In the Gospels, Jesus asked, between the four Gospels, he asked over 350 questions. That's a lot of questions, and he answered almost no questions. In fact, Luke, right, one of the, the great things that Luke shows is, is how smart Jesus was because he said, well, I'll answer your question if you can answer my question. He always wanted to make people think, and in culture today, we don't, we don't have a culture of people that are really good thinkers. We have a culture of people that are feelers. And so we have to help get past feeling and engage the intellect, and how we do that is asking questions. And as we ask questions of people to help defend their position, not confrontationally, hey, so, so why, do you think that, why, why do you think that's the best decision? Why would that work? Let them explain it and, and maybe, I mean, lovingly, right? But I'm, I'm kind of challenging with the questions, not confrontationally, but as they start to think through, a lot of times they'll come to the conclusion that that doesn't make very much sense. Or they might even say, well, what do you think? And then, right, lovingly, well, because of this, I think this. So... We live in a culture that there's so much division and hate. We have to be the ones to help solve that problem. We do it engaging relationally, personally. And I think asking questions is probably the best way to do it. But for us, we have to walk in wisdom, knowing the time we live in and therefore knowing kind of the response we need to have. Does that make sense? All right. So uh, i just like to pray with everyone. But before we do that, I just want to thank uh, some people. Thank you, Tim, so much. Thank you for, for uh, coming and doing this. This is wonderful. Thank you for everyone that supplied food. Thank you to Renovation House for coming out. Uh, ADF can't hear me, but I'm thankful for them. Thankful for parental rights. Uh, thankful for everyone that came out tonight. And uh, I want to pray and just also welcome everyone. You don't have to rush out of here. Uh, Tim already said he's willing to answer more questions. Come up and, and visit with him, and uh, he'll answer more of your questions. Sign a book if you want him to. So if you all just join me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this conference. And uh, here we are at the end. And um, Lord, I just pray that Things are different for each one of us, uh, that our affections are stirred uh, for you, that we might be able to leave this place and um, think about these different areas in life where um, we need to be uh, applying the gospel, where we need to be carrying that message of power forth. So Lord, help us to look back in the past and uh, all the information that we've uh, been given over these past couple days and look toward the future with hope knowing that all that you have done in the past through this great message and all that you will continue to do so lord would you bless everyone in the travels and bless tim as he goes also and we thank you for this in christ's name all god's people said amen, amen.